I really have looked forward so much, seriously, to being here with you. Uh, and I, I just, I, mean, I know this is the sort of thing that you sort of hear preachers say a lot, you know, how happy they are to be there. But, but I, I really do mean this. I feel tremendously privileged to be here with you folk at Kenworth today. And I thank you for the invitation. I have a friend and co-worker whom many of you will know, Ivor Cooper by, by name, and uh, some while ago someone rang me to ask if I could go to such and such a place and speak, uh, preach, and I said, yes, I'm, I'm free and I will come. They said, uh, um, they said, oh good, they said, we asked Ivor Cooper and he couldn't come. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's all right, I don't mind being second choice. They said, what makes you think you were second? <laughs> So I don't know who let you down today, but I'm glad I could step in and, uh, and be with you, and thank you for that. So you are studying on Sundays, or you have been recently, um, what I sometimes think of as the second best book in the Bible. The uh, reformer Martin Luther regarded Paul's letter to the church at Rome as the king of the epistles, uh, and Ephesians as the queen, hence my wildly inaccurate but sort of personal take on it the second best book in the Bible you're looking at Paul's letter the epistle as it's sometimes called to the Ephesians um, you may be interested no you may not but when I became a Christian at the age of 18 with no church background really uh, of any significance uh, I asked my friends what an epistle was and they told me it was an apostle's wife and I, I was, it was some while before I realised it wasn't, wasn't quite what an epistle really is just a fancy word for letter really and uh, Ephesians is one of those books which has within it, as, as you've probably discovered with Wayne's help last week and, and, and previously, it has within it what I think of as before and after photographs. Obviously, word pictures, uh, snapshots, really, like you would see if you, if you go into WH Smith and you look at health and lifestyle magazines. And perhaps look at magazines which offer people help if they're trying to lose weight. You may well find that in that magazine there will be two photos of the same person. And one photo of them will be taken before they started their diet. When they were perhaps, you know, chunky. Very difficult finding a politically correct way of saying this. I think the reason I got started this is I could have started in lots of other ways. Never mind, I will learn one day. So there's a picture of this person who's just carrying a pound or two extra. And in the next photo, it's the same person, but honestly, this is after 40 days of their diet or whatever, when they've only been eating vegetarians or something. And and obviously, they look like they'd have to run around in the shower just to get wet. They're so smith, they could get in between the, the jets of water. And it's a before and after. Now, that's actually what Paul gives us in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, he gives you a whole catalogue of the good things that God has done and the things God is doing and actually some of the things which God is yet to do. But in chapter 2, he says, I want to remind you of what it was like for you and what your condition was before you were converted, before you had faith in Jesus Christ. And he just sets out, I'm not going to go over it in any detail, that would be impertinent because that's already been handled. But I just remind you that... Uh, Paul says at the beginning of chapter 2, well, uh, before you became Christians, you, you were first of all cut off from God. He says, he expresses it as being dead in your sins. Cut off from God. He says, uh, actually, before you became Christians, 
either willfully or unwittingly, you tended to do just what the devil wanted you to do. It's there in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. You followed the ways of the world and the ways of the prince or the ruler of the world, which is a reference to the devil. And then he says, uh, actually, before you became a Christian, this is the before picture, you were pretty well dedicated to just pleasing yourself. You were dedicated to self. He says, you were dedicated to gratifying your own selfish desires. Do, do you see how the picture is building up? And finally, he says, before you became a Christian, he said, you, you were heading for a very, very sticky end indeed. He says, you were destined for judgment. You were, he says, objects of God's wrath. Right? Now that's the before picture. And then the whole thing changes with verse 5. And you begin the after picture. He said, but even though you were dead in your sins, even though you were dedicated to yourself, even though you were willful and, 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 and willfully following the devil, or sometimes unwittingly doing so, and even though you were heading for the judgment of God, but God, nonetheless, through Jesus Christ, has made you alive. He's restored that connection between himself and God. You're no longer heading for judgment. There's no more condemnation hanging over you. It's a completely different picture. The same you, but everything essential has really been changed. So that's a wonderful little before and after snapshot. You've been made alive spiritually. You've been reconciled to or reconnected to God. You've been raised from being what the Bible elsewhere calls slaves of sin to the status of being sons and daughters of God. And God's done all that for you, writes Paul to the Ephesians. And why did he do all that? Well, it's there in verse 4, actually. Um, because of his great love for us. That is why God did that for us. And... and and how has he done it? Well, that's answered for us as well in verses 8 and 9, which I'm sure you must have really focused on last, last week, um, because they are just such key verses in this epistle. He's done it by his grace. For by grace, writes Paul, you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now I'm able to quote that um, in a sort of hybrid mixture of versions, I confess, because I learned it by heart in 1966, round about, or maybe early 1967. It was one of the first half dozen Bible verses that I ever committed to memory. And I learned it in the old King James authorised version, the one with all of these and the thous and the whatsoever and, and all of this. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's how it's put in the, the older versions. But grace is the key, you see. And grace is God's undeserved kindness. God hasn't made us spiritually alive. He hasn't reconciled us to himself. He hasn't raised us to the status of his sons. He hasn't helped us to escape judgment because we deserve to be treated like that. He's done it by grace. We didn't deserve any of it. Any of that. I, um, I was in India uh, a few months ago in, uh, in the south, in and around uh, Bangalore, as, uh, as um, it used to be called, and, um, and a little bit further north in a town called Nellore, which is only a few kilometres 
from the Indian Ocean, very lovely location. And, um, well, I, I got used to this a bit. Everywhere I went, as I went preaching at pastors' conferences and services and um, all manner of things, tremendous opportunities. So I was at a meal for about 150 people suffering from leprosy in dire condition and uh, when I arrived I just quietly prayed I said Lord um, I, I want to preach good news to the poor that's what your son did and I want to do that and these people are about as poor as any I've ever met and I've been a number of places where poverty is pretty awful and uh, I no sooner prayed that than one of the organisers of a meal came up and said would you like to tell these people some good news I said oh yes I would I really would I jumped up and told them the good news about Jesus. Well, nearly everywhere I went, uh, there came a point in the church service or meeting where I would have to stand up at the front. I'll come around here and show you this. And um, someone would come out, the pastor of the church maybe, or one of his fellow leaders or a member of the congregation, and they would unfold a beautiful shawl like this. I've got quite a few of these. This is familiar to you. And uh, then they would... I would bow slightly and they would wrap this around me like this and then I could go and sit down wrapped in my shawl. And, uh, well, I've got to be honest with you now. I was very touched, of course, by, by this custom. They wanted to show, they wanted to show me honour and they wanted to say thank you and show how much they appreciated the fact that I'd gone to the time and trouble and expense. Uh, and it was a lot of time, it was a lot of trouble and it was a lot of expense. To, to go out there and, and to work alongside these lovely Indian Christians in what they were doing for Jesus. And this was their way of saying thank you and showing appreciation. Um, because the downside was, the, the temperature was about 40 degrees. Um, there was no air con in most places I was in. Um, and the humidity was 80%. So it was a bit on the warm side. And when I saw them coming with the shawl, eventually I found I was thinking, oh good, a blanket. That's <laughs> just what I need now. I need a blanket. But nonetheless, I wore it happily. And then when I could, because it was very hot, I would take it off. But I didn't just roll it up and stuff it in a bag or put it under a chair. I would fold it with care, or what passes for care, me being a man. And, uh, and having done that, I would find somewhere clean where I could be seen to be putting it down with due regard for it. Now, this is what I want to say. And this is where it connects with this passage. How do you think these people, many of whom were very, very poor indeed, how do you think these people would have felt if when they gave me this, oh, and in one place I thought it was going to happen, and to my great relief, they gave me this instead. <laughs> well, I can wear that all the time, that's fine. Um, how do you think I, they would have felt if when they gave me that I said oh, well hang on a minute let, let me give you something for that please. Do, do you hear what I'm saying come on I've got it they said, no no it's a gift we love you for coming yes no please come on let, let me come on I come from a rich country you know, let, let, let me give you something you I am quite sure they would have been very deeply offended indeed alright so not trying to be clever but the obvious question how do you think God feels when people say about what he's done for us, sending his son to die on the cross? How do you think people, God feels when people say, oh, well, look, please, let, let, let me give you something for that? 
Let me reach into my pocket and pull out a pathetic, paltry little sample of good deeds and religious observances. Let me pay you back by trying to keep the Ten Commandments. When God has expressed his love to us in this incredible, costly way, priceless way, sending his own son Jesus to die for us, I think God would be deeply, deeply offended and hurt by that. And not only is it impertinent to try and pay for what God has given us by doing good and by being good, it's also futile. (coughs) Because we could never, ever do enough to deserve what God has done. Do you get that? The Bible says that when God wanted to bring us back to himself, he spent, he gave something so valuable as to be priceless. He says, the Bible says, it wasn't silver and gold that God paid out to bring you back to himself and make you right with him. It was the precious blood of Christ. It's not only impertinent for you and I to try to work our way into God's good books, it doesn't work. It's futile. Alright, now I know, I can, uh, I'm, I'm mildly telepathic, not really, but I can see little sort of thought bubbles above your head. I mean, well, okay, that, that was great, thanks for just re-preaching last Sunday's sermon. What about the passage we gave you for the day? Alright, so I get that. But, you know, don't, don't ask a preacher to come and give them a passage and just drop them on that passage when that passage begins with the word therefore and expect him not to look back and see what's going before. Okay? Yeah, you can have that lesson for love. Right. So let's, okay, we, we, we look. Because, you see, what Paul's going to go on to say in the passage which we had, perhaps we can have objected again, Chris, uh, what he's going to go on to say is, is this. Look, this reconciliation that God has has initiated and that Jesus has been the agent, God's agent in accomplishing this reconnection with God that God has brought into being and made possible this has implications not just for your relationship with God, it has implications for your relationship with other people Um, it's not just a kind of vertical thing you know. it's a horizontal thing as well and so Paul goes on in this passage and, and knowing that the church of Jesus Christ the, the, the company of people on earth who believe in Jesus would ultimately come from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and would be a wonderfully diverse group bonded together because of their common faith in Jesus Christ knowing that Christians are God's family, what he calls in verse 19, members of God's household, it just means God's family. And consequently, because of their differences, knowing that they would struggle to accept one another, and the different ways and the different baggage which they come with, um, he goes on to write the verses which we have read. You see, let's take an example which he he is talking about here. Um, He's really talking here about how if a Jew believes in Jesus Christ and is put right with God on the basis of what Christ has done and solely on that basis, the grace of God, and if a non-Jew gets put right with God solely on that basis that Christ has died for them, then uh, they become not, as it were, two warring individuals, but members of one, one family. You see, the, the Jews and the non-Jews at the time of St. Paul didn't really hit it off. He said, as a masterpiece of understanding. 
I mean, saying they didn't really get on or see eye to eye is a bit like saying Everest is a bit on the steep side. You know, it's, it's, it's true, but it's not, not really doing it justice, is it? You see, but the Jewish people, in the eyes of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were, to use an inelegant phrase, that they were perceived as being a bit up themselves. There's an idiom which doesn't work when you're preaching overseas, by the way. Um, but that's how the non-Jews saw the Jews. Um, they, the Jews tended to give themselves airs because, after all, they were God's chosen people and therefore they must be his favourites, mustn't they? Completely forgetting what Moses had said to the Jews long before in Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is what Moses said to the Jewish nation, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you. You see, Moses said to them hundreds of years before, God didn't choose you to be his people because you were bigger or better or brighter or better looking or better behaved. You were none of those things. He chose you because he chose you because he chose you because that's the sort of God he is. Because it's his right to choose and who dares say no to God? God does what he wants. Because he's God. That's what it means to be God. He gods. And part of that was he, he chose these people. He loved them. And he chose them, you see. Well, so the Gentiles and the Jews just didn't get on because the Jews were perceived as being very arrogant, giving themselves airs because they were God's favourites. And the Gentiles did not like that air of superiority which they, they had. And the Jews, of course, they didn't get on with the non-Jews because they considered them spiritual pond life, basically. Unfit for God. Coarse, crude, unsophisticated, unkempt. So there was no love lost between them, you see. In fact... uh, Paul, writing here to non-Jewish believers in Jesus, says in verse 12, Remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel, you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, you were, in short, he says at the end of verse 12, you were hopeless and godless, you were without hope and without God in the world. So do we get the picture? Jew, Gentile, boom. Collision. And then they, they both believe in Jesus. And they find they've got to spend a lot of time in each other's houses. That was a big leap for the Jews. They didn't like going in the houses of non-Jews. They start sharing food. Whoa! Food cooked in a non-kosher kitchen. And then they discover, I don't know, maybe they discover that the, that the Jews love to pray with their arms in the air and the non-Jews love to pray lying flat on the floor or dancing around. I don't know. They just, they just, there was all sorts of potential for, for dissonance and for, for disagreement. But God's intention, listen, was to create out of two types of people, Jews and non-Jews, one new family, made up of people from every nation, tribe and tongue. And in that new family of the church, class, status, ethnicity, attainment, wealth, uh, gender, none of these things would really count for very much. And that's interesting because they're the things that people get so het up about in our world. 
But in the Church of Jesus Christ, these things are no longer factors or ought not to be. Why? Because anybody who gets put right with God gets put right with exact, on exactly the same basis as anybody else who gets put right with God. Isn't that incredible, is it? So I, I, can't, I can't think I'm better than you because if I'm right with God, it's only because of what Jesus has done for me. And if you're right with God, it's only because of what Jesus has done for you. And the fact that some of you had parents who were, were, were lovely Christian people and you were prayed for as soon as you were conceived and they prayed for you while you were in the room and they taught you the Bible stories from before you were old enough to read them for yourselves. That's your story. And the fact that my story is very different and I, I was arrested three times for all sorts of things before I became a Christian and had no church background at all, that's my story. But here we are, both believers in Jesus, both belonging to the one family of God, and the things which would have kept us apart socially and kept us apart in all manner of ways don't count for anything. Isn't that true? So no one can claim that they're right with God on the basis of their own merits and no one can ever say they can never be right with God because it doesn't depend on them. And in verse 15 we're told it's because of what Jesus has done. Look at verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. You see, Jesus has kept the law perfectly, better than the law keepers could, and he's kept it on behalf of the law breakers. And so whether you're a law keeper, a religious person or a non-religious person, it doesn't matter. The only way you're ever going to be right with God is if you put your personal faith in Jesus Christ. There's simply no other way of, of doing it. It's as if Paul talks, did you notice in the reading, that um, he talks in verse 14 about a dividing wall of hostility. It is as if Paul is saying that Jesus had personally gone and knocked down the wall in the temple at Jerusalem which kept the non-Jews separate to the Jews. It's as if he's, he's saying, look, it's, it's as if Jesus had run into the temple one day and kicked, kicked that wall down so Jews and non-Jews could all worship God together. Of course, he didn't run into the temple and kick the wall down. He did something much better. He died on the cross to make it possible for Jews and non-Jews to be right with God through faith in him. So there's no grounds for boasting, there's no ground for sectarianism, there's no ground for segregation. All believers, regardless of birth or background, come to God on the same basis and are part of the same family. And that's what Paul is saying in that passage in Ephesians 2. However, just, just note this. Um, all, all this about being put right with God and becoming part of God's family, becoming part of what God is doing, he talks about a building that God is building, of which we are part, we're the bricks, etc. All that does not happen to people automatically. I mean, really, it doesn't. Uh, now, years ago, um, my friend, whom I mentioned before, Ivan, and I were thinking, how could we reach out to people and tell people about Jesus? Uh, trying to think a little bit outside the box, whatever the box is. And um, so we hired the basement of a pub in Leamington on Monday nights. And um, we put in a kind of house band, so some Christian musicians, and to play Christian kind of Christian music and, and popular covers, etc. Um, for Monday night, from about seven o'clock until 
kicking out time at the pub. And uh, the idea was that Christians would say to their friends and their neighbours, you want to come out for a drink? Come on, we'll go to Holy Joe's. That's what we call this place. And, um, and then they'd come down. And every so often, we were very upfront about it. Two or three times during the evening, I would get up while people were sitting around drinking and chatting and listening to the music, which is close to music down for a minute, I'd get up and leaning against the bar, sometimes with a newspaper in one hand and a New Testament in the other hand, I would talk for a few minutes about my faith in Christ and about, about the Lord. And, uh, and then we'd have great conversations at the table about that, you see. One night I was leaving, it was, uh, and the pub was closing, and as I went up the stairs to go out of the door onto the street, uh, one of the drinkers in the bar upstairs called me over. He said, um, I hear the music and some voices down there. What, what's happening? So I explained what we were doing. We were telling people about Jesus. And he said, what do you want to do that for? So we had a talk about it. He said, well, you don't need to, you don't need to tell people about Jesus. You don't need to tell people to become Christians. Because we're, we're, we're all forgiven, aren't we? We're all Christians. I said, that's an interesting idea. How, how do you figure that? He said, well, and I guess he must have had some Sunday school background because he knew a little bit of Bible. He said, well... Um, Christ died for the sins of the whole world, didn't he? I said, yeah, that's right, he did. He said, well, there you go then. If Christ died for everybody, then we're all okay, aren't we? He said. And uh, it was late at night, you know, cut me some slack, I was tired. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, I have to think, the old wheels had to rev for a bit. And then, then I said this, um, tell me, I said, is it possible to get a train from Leamington Spa Station to London? Now, I knew the answer. I mean, to be honest, anybody who debates in public has long ago learned to only ask questions in which they already know the answer. <laughs> but I, I knew the answer, and, uh, and the answer, of course, is yes, you can get on a train to London, Maryland, and you can be there in sort of 90 minutes or whatever it is. He said, yes, it is, it's possible to get a train from, Lo- from Leamington to London. I said, right, it's possible, because, because the, the, the engine is there, and the rolling stop's there, and all the infrastructure is there, you know, the signals have been put up there, and the stations, and the lines, and the power, it's all there, isn't it? It's possible to make the journey. He said, yes, it is. I said, right, it's possible, but it's, it's not obligatory, is it? Well, he had been drinking quite a lot in the evening, and I think obligatory was a bit of a stretch. I'm not being snide about it, but I, it, that was a bit of a stretch. So I didn't help matters much, because when he looked puzzled by the word obligatory, I said, it's not compulsory. Well, that wasn't actually. That wasn't a whole lot better. So I said, they said, you don't have to do it. You can make the journey, but you don't have to. Right, he said, that's right. I said, no, it's all there, it's all possible, but you've got to get on the train if you want to make the journey, right? He saw where that was going. He wasn't that drunk. And he didn't like it. Because he turned around and said, Ah, but we didn't have trains in the time of Jesus, did they? <laughs> <laughs> so I decided one of us had had too much to drink. I gave him a benefit of the doubt and I thought, oh, I will leave. But do you, do you see the point? I wasn't trying to be a smart addict. Just trying to get the point home. You see? The journey from heaven, from earth to heaven, is possible. We can be put right with God, but it is not compulsory that we are. We have to, and the clue, I'm not departing from the Bible here, the clue is here, it's in verse 8. Um, no, sorry. Alright, no, it's in verse 13, and it says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. 
Now that little expression, in Christ, is very, very important. And if you want to understand it, the simplest way is probably just to reverse the order of the words. You need to have Christ in your life in order to have your sins forgiven and be right with God. It doesn't happen automatically. You have to get on the train. Do you see that? So, God has wonderfully changed our circumstances from death to life. From judgment to eternal life. From being slaves of sin to the status of sons of God. From being separated from God to being reconciled with God. He's made us alive in Christ. He has provided a basis on which we can be put right with God and it's the same basis for all people everywhere. So we do not get up ourselves because we've been put right with God as if we're somehow better than anybody else. We are not. We have received his grace and we've responded to it by faith. And if God blesses your church with growth, you will find that people will join you who come from very different backgrounds, spiritually, sociologically, in every way. And they will all have their own take on how things should be done. And they will all think their own way is the right way. And they'll probably all have some lovely verses from the Bible to prove that their way is the right way. What does the Bible say we should do in that situation? Accept one another without arguing about disputable matters. Romans chapter 14. Remember, Christ has died to break down walls of hostility between his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Uh, it has this disturbing uh, tendency to, uh, to take us unawares and to, to take us down roads that sometimes we'd rather not explore. And so we, we pray that you'll help us to face up to any challenge that we've received from your word today. And we pray, Lord, that we will be people who gladly and uh, uncomplainingly welcome into our family those whom you bring to yourself. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Thank you for allowing me to share this time with you. The Lord bless you.